Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and Forbes blogger, and I created the U-Turn Podcast because, let's face it, every now and again, we realize that we're living life on autopilot, and it's time to wake up and make that U-Turn in your life. So prepare to go deep with some of the most transformational people I know, here to help you grow and upgrade your mindset, whether it's in work or love. Also, be sure to stick around for the end of every episode where I'm going to reflect on the conversation and offer actionable coaching insights to have a real impact on your life. In the meantime, we've opened up access to three free e-courses on uturnpodcast.com. So head on over there if you want to land a new job you love, find your purpose, or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you got to do is head on over to uturnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. So I think our debt is kind of like a microcosm of our general relationship with money. And you're right, it is so sneaky, it is so hard to see. I did an exercise, I went back to my high school and gave a talk for Writers Week, and we did an exercise where I said certain words and I had them just write down the first thing that came to mind. And I think doing an exercise like that can be really helpful because we, when we go with our gut, it kind of brings things to the surface. So I did, I said, what does it mean? What what comes to mind when I say wealthy and rich and millionaire and billionaire and credit card? You know, we, we could keep going with the, and seeing what comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think also, even if you bring it back to like first money memories, things that you were told about money, we often are told things about debt and what that means and good debt and bad debt and people make making judgments about people around us who got in debt and we often take on a lot of those things and they inform how we interrelate with money and the things that we owe. Hey, U-Turners, guess who? It's Ash here, and I'm on the line with a fellow Ash, Ashley Feinstein-Gersley, <laughs> who is a money coach, and she is the new author of the 30-Day Money Cleanse. So I thought, who better to have here than her to talk to you about how to get out of debt, something near and dear to my heart, unfortunately, and the 30-Day Money Cleanse. So we would go through some of her steps that she shares in her book. She's going to have a course coming out about this. So um, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me on the U-Turn podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Love joining fellow Ashes. Yeah, I know. We, we roll deep. We roll deep. Yeah. There's there's actually a lot of Ashley stalls that started following me on Instagram. It's like a whole movement. That is so funny. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of keen to hear your story. Like, I guess if you can kind of give us some insight on like what got you into this relationship with money and this interest with money. Yes. So long story short is I needed it myself and I studied finance in college and then I worked in finance as an investment banker and then in corporate finance and still knew nothing about my own money, which was shocking, right? So I found out that if if I didn't know about money and I studied, I have all this finance background, then really who doesn't know about money? And what I found is very few people actually know how to confidently deal with their finances. And so the fiscal femme came from a need that I had myself. And as I went along on my money journey, I was reading a bunch of things and adapting them to work for me and wanted to share it. And so I had, I was scared to share it, but that was a fear I conquered and started writing about it on the fiscal femme probably six or seven years ago. And people started asking me for help and other sites asked me to write for them. And I, it confirmed what I thought that we all need help with this. And I found that the numbers are really important. We're not educated around the numbers or the logistics. And then it was also important to incorporate the emotional behavioral sides of money so that, because I think food and money are very similar. So I I tend to combine the practical logistical steps of the numbers with the habits and the emotional behavioral side of money. Amazing. And it also kind of gets me thinking, like, I feel very nostalgic having you on this show because I think you probably remember back when we both started, it was around the same time, I think, because there weren't a lot of like career business money coaches in the millennial space. And I know that you've probably since expanded into helping all sorts of 
people with money and I've since started helping so many different people in different stages of their career. But I remember going on the internet and you being one of very few people like creating content in the coaching space. And so it's fun to have you here like almost a decade later, you know? I know. It is crazy. crazy. I know. I swear that I invented Money Coach, but now there's a lot of them. (laughs) Totally. I know. And back when I looked for coaches on the internet, there were none for like career coaching. Like I saw a lot of like really old school models. And so it's kind of fun like to have this kind of connection with you where I'm like, oh, you're an OG. Like you've been at this. Right, right. And OGs together, even better. Totally. Two OG Ashes just having a podcast conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, what we're doing today. So, you know, I, I don't think I really looped you in much, but the short version of my journey since we both saw each other on the internet, like, I don't know, it was probably like 2013. I created a course, it blew up on a webinar, it did millions of dollars in revenue in two to three months, and then it lost a lot of revenue because I was in denial when profit margins started to thin and Facebook ads got more expensive, and the denial got me into debt. And I held over my team, it was tens of thousands of dollars of overhead a month, and now I've healed and I'm still healing um, and I, I was ended up uh, being left, I think, with a half million dollars of debt. And a lot of friends said, claim bankruptcy, call it a day. And I chose not to because there was something to me about the journey of taking responsibility for it. And I don't know if that was like a ridiculous ego move on my side, like I can do this. Um, but I've pretty much cleared about 90% of it in two years and wow. created other businesses and kept my life going and Uh, So to me, this is like a really personal topic. And I think for a lot of people, it's loaded. Like, like, why do we get into debt? So I'm kind of curious, like, why do you think people get into debt? Like, what do you think? I know that there's some mindset to this. So what do you think the root is? Because for me, it was denial and not loving myself enough to say this isn't working. Face the truth Um, and being attached to something that didn't exist anymore. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that money, especially debt are really hard to talk about. And having conversations like this, where you share openly about what happened and what you think got you there are it's like so valuable to, to everyone who gets to listen to the conversation. So thank you for sharing that. Mm, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, it's such a personal topic and I'm really excited to be supporting people just on this podcast with you sharing about something. So do. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that, I think, there's so much that we have working against us when it comes to money and getting wealthy and it all pertains to debt as well. So if you think about, first of all, we don't ever learn about this thing called money that we have to deal with every single day, pretty much. Um, and then we also can't really talk about it, which we just kind of alluded to that you don't often hear these stories and get to learn from people and even share what you're going through with the people that you're closest with who love you the most. Like we don't talk about it. It's very taboo. So there's this thing that we're not set up to deal with. We deal with it every day. We can't talk about it. And then it's really emotionally charged and we often tie up our net worth with our self-worth and believe that how we're doing financially says something about who we are as people and then also how tie it up with our happiness. So if only I had this, I earned this, I would be happy. Um, so we do, we do a lot of those type of things that make it really emotionally charged. And then that makes it so all all of those things. Then plus as women, there's so many more things working against us with money. There's the pay gap and the pink tax. So things cost us more and we're not investing as much and we live longer. So we need more money saved. So all of this to say, um, while it is really depressing that we have a lot working against us so we can have some compassion for ourselves for the situations we're in financially. And also not to mention, if you think about billion dollar marketing budgets, trying to separate us from our money and preying on our insecurities to sell us things and get us to buy things and, um, and also just not knowing who to turn to for education around this because so much of the industry, the financial industry, people are selling us things and taking commissions and affiliate fees for selling us things that we don't need or are potentially even harmful. So it's just hard to know who to, where to start, who to turn to, to know anything about this. Um, and I think the benefit of knowing this, as depressing as it is, is that we can have that compassion and forgiveness of where we are and kind of 
realize it's no wonder we're not flourishing in our financial lives. Yeah. Well, and you, you, you said a term that I think not everybody knows, which I think is a very funny term is the pink tax. So the Mm. tax for being like, not necessarily a tax, but the fees associated with being a woman, you know, whether it's anything from tampons to birth control pills to different, like, you know, pregnancy, there's so many different things associated um, so I think that's a fun, fun term. And yes. And it's also to, just means like everything that we buy costs more for the same thing. So there is a, an amazing study done by the New York city department of consumer affairs. And it was showing that at target, a scooter is double the price when it's pink or, um, and they've since remedied that, but our personal care products are 13% more than the same product for men. And ours are actually smaller. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, Great. Yeah, totally. Um, and so as far as like how to get out of debt, yes. Um, you know, I feel like anybody listening right now, maybe they're in traffic maybe they're just at the gym tuning into this and they're thinking about the debt in their bank account right now. And I totally get it. And in my experience of debt is that it can be all consuming and it can stifle if depending on how your beliefs are and how you relate to the debt, it can be very stifling for your creativity, for your risk taking, because you don't want to risk your financial health for making some sort of change in your career, especially maybe you don't like your job and you're scared to leave because you have all this debt you need to handle. So I'm so excited to get into your money cleanse. And those of you listening, we're going to get into the four weeks um, worth of steps that we have, but let's just start simple with how to get out of debt. What would be the first step for anybody listening right now that really wants to get honest and make a change? Amazing. So, and also just to the fact that you didn't file bankruptcy and you kept your, you wanted to pay back your debt. Like all debt is, is something that you owe for something that you bought. And so essentially by you doing that, taking responsibility, committing to paying it down, like maybe, you know, people will, would say you're crazy. Like you could have just had all of that wiped out, but having been able to pay 90% of that down is probably the most tremendous, incredible feeling. And shows that that's all it was, was you were paying something back and look, I'm going to do it. So I think that took a lot of the emotion out of it, um, by just tackling it that way. So the first thing you do is, or first thing I would recommend you do is taking inventory. So just listing out every piece of debt that you have and the following information with it. So you can do it in Excel, you can write it down, but each piece of debt, the interest rate, the balance, the payment date, and the monthly payment or minimum payment if it's a credit card. And then if it's a credit card, you can also include the limit for fun just to, to see that um, go down. So the item, the balance, the interest rate, payment date, payment amount, and potentially the limit. Mm, okay, that's incredible. And I also think, like, it, is there a way for you to explain like interest amounts? Because people say 20% interest, 27%. I believe if everybody listening is anything like me, you don't even know what that means. Like I've had financial planners explain it to me when my business was crushing it. I was surrounded by them. I'm curious to understand from you, like if you have a thousand dollars of debt and you have an American Express at 25%, what does that mean for your monthly payment? Yes. Okay. So our interest rate, if you imagine interest rate is essentially getting something reserve reverse on sale. So when we go to the store and we want to buy something at 20% off, when we put on a credit card, we're paying 20% more for it or 25% more depending on the interest rate. So it's kind of like a reverse sale. Um, and all right, so let's do the calc. So if you have a thousand dollars on your credit card and so interest rates, you often see it's APY, it's annual percentage rate per year. So you're paying, let's say you're paying 25% on a thousand, that's 250 per year on that debt. So every month and $21 in interest. And so that percentage or that amount just increases with the amount of debt that you have. Got it. So as you pay your debt down, obviously that amount every month is going to go down with it. Yes. Okay. And a lot of credit cards. So this is something very sneaky that a lot of credit card companies have is that when they give you the minimum payment, um, you think that if you're paying the minimum payment that you'll eventually pay down the debt. But a lot of times it's paying off just the interest or sometimes not even paying off all the interest. So when we're paying minimum payments, our debt balances often increase. And is there any like hustle? Th- I, I love, um, I don't know. Do you know my friend Alex Benayan who wrote the book, The Third Door? 
No. He he's all about the third door, which is uh, to me it could kind of sounds like a interesting sexual activity or something, but <laughs> it actually is just um, this idea that like in life there's like it life is like a nightclub. There's the front line where everybody gets in, the back line where the VIPs go, and then there's a third door where most successful people kind of sneak in. Whether it's like the kitchen window or all these different things in life, and. He argues that the most successful people usually live in the third door. So I'm kind of curious with money and credit cards, what is the third door? Like, is there like unexpected phone calls people can make? So let's say somebody right now is listening and they take inventory. So they're like, okay, I got 10 grand on this and five grand on this and this many student loans. So maybe they have like $50,000 of debt or even like, let's just say 10,000 because that's an easier number to deal with. Um, What? can they do like what phone calls can they make or what negotiations or kind of like sneaky awesome little tricks can they do to support themselves as they start to take responsibility for the debt yes so totally there are many things to try um one is and this is great especially if you've had a credit card or had a relationship with a certain bank for a while to call and negotiate your interest rate down is often, and you know, it doesn't always work, um, with clients of mine, it's worked. And if they also, if someone says they can't help you, you can always escalate. Is there anyone else I can talk to? Can I talk to your boss? Can I talk to your boss until someone can actually help you do that? Um, there's a lot of people play the 0% interest transfer game. So you open a credit card that has zero interest and you transfer your debt there. So you're not paying interest as you paid on your debt. Mm -hmm. Um, and technically, that's that makes sense financially. It's just we want to make sure that we stop the bleeding and are not actually we're fixing the problem underlying rather than just ending up opening these new cards and having new debt that now earns interest <laughs> eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so negotiating our rate can be something. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm playing the zero interest or some backdoor e or third dory things. Or also like, what if you have a massive amount of credit on a credit card and you're just like looking at it and you're, cause to me, like I'm so, you know, when I think about the accomplishments in my life, like right, you know, get, you know how it is getting a book deal. It like feels so magic. If you're a writer, that to me is the most magical thing that's ever happened to me. Second to that is paying off this much debt. And yeah. so I'm curious for you to explain for those of us who, cause there were some times I looked at my debt and it was like a hundred thousand dollars on an American express And even though I'm a strong businesswoman and I can make magic happen with my finances and business coaching and all the things I've done, sometimes I'd look at it and be like, I'm never going to get rid of this. So I'm guessing there's some people who are feeling that right now. Is there a way for them to call the bank and be like, how do we make amends and or go to court or get rid of this? Oh, definitely. So, right. So that's another. So the next option down the line other than paying off the amount or trying to get the rate lower so you're paying lower interest on the amount would be to negotiate with the creditor or the bank. Mm -hmm. Um, And they make deals depending on um, what you think you can pay, what's going on in the economy. So for example, in 2008, they were making a lot more deals than they are now. Um, But, and so you can get often, your debt reduced greatly, but you will, it will definitely affect your interest, your um, credit score and your ability to bank with that or bank again. So it's, it's definitely an option. And if that's something, yeah, it's definitely an option to consider if you're feeling like you're drowning in your, your debt for sure. And if somebody right now is listening and they want to negotiate, um, would they get a lawyer for that or would they just kind of take the initiative? I don't know if it was me, I'd probably be like, dad, will you be on the line with me for this? Like, I don't know. Um, do they just call the bank and say, Hey, I want to negotiate. Is there a certain person they ask for? I'm guessing some babes who are listening right now actually have an insurmountable about debt and they don't even know that this is an option for them. And so I'm curious what steps they could take if they did want to kind of put up their white surrender flag and say, I am not going to be able to pay this for years of my life. Like I want to negotiate. I have a lump sum. I want to pay you guys a lump sum. Like how do you approach that? Would it be an attorney and who would you contact at the bank? Yes. So I have heard, um, some negative experiences with doing it on completely on your own. So you, but people definitely have done it. But if, when you negotiate something, definitely have, I would have an attorney or someone who, even if it's a family member to, um, look over the terms of it to make sure that everything looks as you discussed with the credit card company. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you really just call, um, and say, I, I can't pay this, right. I'm that I want to, 
talk about my options. Okay, understood. And, and, they, and is there a person at the bank that these that you would call? They probably put you. It's a good question. In the right direction, but I would just I'm like looking at the back of my 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 credit card right now. I would just call the customer service and say I can't pay this debt. Who who can I talk to? Yeah, got it. Interesting. Okay, I'm sure there's some people right now who are listening who are like I didn't even know that was an option. So that's amazing to kind of treat your credit card like a max, you know, like a flea market on vacation and be like haggle <laughs> it down. Like I I have this much. Um, okay. Great. Yes. Um, so, and if you're thinking about like three levels, right? So you have the level where um, you negotiate the rate, but that doesn't actually change the amount of debt that you're paying down. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're you're essentially negotiating the rate, but you're paying down the same amount of debt. And then there's the reducing the amount of debt by making a deal with the whoever you owe money to. Mm-hmm. And then there's the option of filing bankruptcy. So actually eliminating um, the debt and starting from square one. Okay. And before we get into your next step to get out of debt, I would love to understand credit scores um, for everybody listening. So like you said, like if somebody calls right now and they want to negotiate their interest rate, that's not going to hurt your credit score necessarily. But if they call and they want to pay off a lump sum of debt um, or they don't pay their credit card minimums, it affects their credit score. So yes. I'm curious kind of for feedback from you, like what, I mean, <laughs> girls like me, it's like, we're better at using credit cards than credit scores. So I'm curious. <laughs> I mean, this is obviously since change because nothing will quite make you learn finances like a half million dollars of debt. Let me tell you, Ash. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious to understand for everybody listening about that. Like, can you explain an overview on like, what is allegedly a good credit score? When is it going to start to hurt you? How is it going to start to hurt you? And what can you do? Sorry, yes. 500 questions. I love it. So credit score is just a number that allows someone lending you money or giving you a utility bill or getting a car loan, how trustworthy you are as a lender. So it's supposed to represent how likely you are to pay them back. Okay. And there are a bunch of different, so basically there's information that feeds the score Um, And there are a bunch of different scores, but probably the most common one is the FICO score. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also the Vantage score. And pretty much every credit card company, every mortgage, um, every bank does their own run of credit score based on what they think is important about you to decide about your credit worthiness to to lend you money. So um, for the FICO score, it's on-time payments. Is the, is the biggest portion, um, your, how long you've had credit. So your credit history, um, then how many accounts you have open. So if you're opening a bunch of new accounts, like that would be something that would decrease your score because they're afraid that you're over levering now, um, your credit utilization. So the percentage balance on your credit cards at any given point in time, when they check to see if you're how maxed out you are on your credit cards. And I am forgetting one other one. When it comes to your credit score, let's say that you pulled an Ashley stall and you blew up a business, got rich really fast and then lost it all. Um, you know, not that that's for everyone, but let's say that that happens. It's like my credit score, I've since, you know, improved it so much and I'm back to normal ground. But there was a long time where I was like paying off this debt and my credit score showed it. And so I'm curious for everybody to understand if you make some poor decisions or maybe not some poor decisions, maybe you go into debt over something really awesome and important for your life, especially medical, which I know to be the number one reported cause of bankruptcy is medical debt. Is that correct, Ash? That, yeah. Okay. So what a crazy yeah. country we live in having gone to school in Europe and realizing that that's like people get sick and they can't even afford their own survival. So I'm curious to hear from you how long does it take to bounce back or what steps can somebody take if they have a a poor credit score and what do you deem to be a poor credit score? It's a great question. So you really only, so a lot of times we think of our credit score as like our financial well-being. So if I have a higher credit score, my financial well-being is higher. And that's not necessarily the case because things stay on our credit score for long periods of time. So depending on the item, we talked about bankruptcy, that stays on for seven years. Um, even when I open a new credit card, I think that stays on for 18 months. So my, my, it could ding my credit because I got a hard inquiry. So um, now I'm blanking on 
<laughs> oh, what is a good credit score? So they credit scores range from 350 to 850. Mm-hmm. That's the range. Um, and so 850 being the highest, and that's absolutely perfect credit. It's every lender has a different measure of what is good credit. When we have a higher credit score, we typically get lower interest rates because the banks want to be, or whoever is lending us money, doesn't have to be as highly compensated for lending us money because they think there's a higher likelihood that we'll pay them back. Um, so it's really helpful to have a high credit score when you're taking out a mortgage, for example, because a mortgage can be really big and any percentage point on a a large number is a lot of money. Um, so when we, so credit scores are really helpful when we want to take out loans, buy a house, buy a car, um, company, some companies are even checking them for employees. So I'm not sure on the official, like FICO has, I think, an official range. It's like over 700 is good, over 800 is excellent, 600 is, uh, I'm trying to think if it's like 600 is fair or 500 is fair. Um, I believe it's 600 is fair. That's what I 600 is fair, 700 is good, and 800 is excellent, I think, over 800. Okay, this is so helpful. And okay, so everybody who's tuning in, how to get out of debt. Number one, take inventory, write down your due dates, write down your credit cards, write down how much you owe, um, what and interest rates. And then also, you'd mentioned before we started recording, number two is prioritize. So for somebody like me, I am like a romantic in life, like not just in love. So to me, I'm like, (laughs) I just want to have a good time. So to me, I can imagine... And I have, I remember when I tried to prioritize, it was like, everything's a priority. I want to go to Bali. I want to go to Paris. I want to be with this person. So how do we get soberly honest and really, really prioritize? Yes. Okay. So by prioritize, I mean, deciding which to pay down first. And even in your, exactly in your example, we can want to prioritize everything because we just want it all gone. Um, And that also reminds me of one of the most common credit card debt mistakes that I see is that it feels so good to pay them down that we often put more money towards them than we can afford to. And then we have no money to live. So we have to put our spending back on a credit card. And then that feels really futile. So as much as possible, um, and it might even take a few paychecks or some time to build a buffer is to move over to debit card life Mm -hmm. so that you're not actually adding to your balances, which can get really murky when we're adding and paying off and it's really hard to see what the progress we're making. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we want to prioritize. So which debt are we paying down first? And I think about that in three different ways. The first is the snowball method, which means you pay off the smallest debts first. And the reason that really works is because it feels so good to check pieces of debt off of our list and that builds momentum. So even though higher interest rate debt might be technically costing us more money, we're building this momentum and might even pay off more debt just because it feels good and um, to, to cross things off the list. So that's so a that's personal the... psychological trick on yourself. Like Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I'm all about those. Okay. Next. Yeah. And it's really in, in personal finance, it's so important to not just look at the, uh, um, the, the tactics that make the most sense only financially, because we are, irrational humans. And it's really important to always think also of our motivation around that. So Mm -hmm. if, if technically that makes most sense financially to pay off the highest interest rate, that doesn't mean that it's actually going to work the best for me. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So then the second, it leads perfectly into our second, our second way to prioritize, which is to pay off the highest interest rate debt first, because technically that is costing us the most money. And then I actually added a method recently because I had a lot of people I was working with who might've owed their parents money or a friend or had a horrible experience with a bank. And they just had some debt that was causing them a lot of emotional distress. And it wasn't necessarily the smallest or wasn't necessarily the highest interest rate debt but we really moved that higher priority because it was important to them to Mm. get that Mm. out of there. So So I would, yeah. So using those three methods and you can use a combination, you can use one if one makes the most sense for you, but writing down one through however number, many pieces of debt you have, what the priority list is. Got it. Great. Okay. 
And um, another step you had mentioned when it comes to getting out of debt. So once you take an inventory, you look at your cards, you decide, am I going to use the snowball method where I'm chipping away at entire cards or am I going to look at the highest interest and, and start to chip away at that? Um, so it's all mindset. And then I'm curious about number three. Um, so you said pay minimums of everything except for the number one priority. Tell me about that. Yes. Okay. So how I would recommend doing it is every minimum payment gets paid and then the number one priority debt gets the minimum plus any additional that we can put towards paying it down. So everything is focused into this number one priority. And then once that one gets paid off, then we move on to everything additional gets paid off on number two. In addition to that monthly payment that was going to number one is now available to go to number two. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. And you know, I love your fourth step before we get into your money cleanse, which is how to get out of debt, letting go of shame. So I think that the thing about shame or any human experience, confidence, is that it's not across the board. And I think a lot of people think I have shame. Well, you might have shame in one area, but not shame in another. Or you might have confidence in one area, but not in another. So in my case with shame, with debt, I didn't have any shame in my business. Like I would be like, hey, I'm an entrepreneur that took a risk and I crushed it and then it didn't pan out. And even if it, if I never crushed it and I just, you know, failed at something, that's okay because I'm in the game. I got my skin in the arena. Um, mm. But when it came to love, I felt so much shame because I'm like, oh my God, I'm bringing debt into somebody's life when they've worked so hard to be a responsible adult. So... <laughs> Um, you know, it's like, oh, you've, you've done everything right, but then you met Ashley Stahl, and now she's about to just do complete terrorism on your bank account. So I'm curious to learn from you, Ashley, like, how do people figure out where their shame is? Because I think it's very insidious and sneaky. Yeah, and it, so I think our debt is kind of like a microcosm of our general relationship with money. Um and you're right. It is so sneaky. It is so hard to see. I did an exercise with, I went back to my high school and gave a talk for writer's week. And we did an exercise where I said certain words and I had them just write down the first thing that came to mind. And I think doing an exercise like that can be really helpful because we, when we go with our gut, it kind of brings things to the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did, I said, what does it mean? What, what comes to mind when I say wealthy and rich and millionaire and billionaire and credit card, you know, we could, we could keep going with the, and seeing what comes up. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think also, even if you bring it back to like first money memories, things that you were told about money, um, we often are told things about debt and what that means and good debt and bad debt and, and people make making judgments about people around us who got in debt. And we often take on a lot of those things and they inform how we interrelate with money and our, the things that we owe. Okay. That's really helpful. And what would you say is the most loaded one of all the words you've said that you feel like there's a lot of juice for people who are thinking about what that word you say means for them? I think it it was weird. Well, rich, I think, had a lot of negative connotation versus wealthy, even though people might describe the same person in the same situation with either word. Um, and then, like, billionaire. Mm, interesting. Um, and I think there's, you know, it's funny. On the one side, we have a lot of negative connotations with owing money. And then on the other side, I think we have a lot of negative connotations with being wealthy. And um, that can hold us back from either... I find that when we have a lot of negative beliefs about what it means to be wealthy, like, oh, that means I'm greedy or that I stepped on a lot of people to get there, then we either have a really hard time bringing in money or once we do, we have a hard time keeping it. Um, okay. So this is helpful. I think um, one of the my favorites is when you just say to somebody money is and what is the first word that comes to your mind? Yeah. Like, like for me the thought I had was money is easy. Like it's always been easy for me to make money and it used to be really hard for me to keep it. Now, um, I'm, I'm reframing that. And so I'm curious for everybody listening, what is the word that comes to your mind? Money is what, what's the first thing? If you, if you're still thinking about it, you're thinking too long. Um, right. <laughs> um, okay. So Ash, what the, the steps of your money cleanse. So tell me a little bit about your book. What was the intention of it? And then let's get into the four weeks um, for this last piece of the, uh, conversation. Yes. Okay. So the book, so 
kind of told you a bit about my journey. So I was working with people, got become a coach, and I was seeing a lot of trends in the people I was working with. And what I found was, and you are such a perfect example of this, is we often think more earning more money is the answer to everything. And I find that actually it doesn't really matter how much or how little we earn. Um, yes, we need to have our needs met and there's like definitely an amount that's too little to earn. Um, but for those of us not in that boat, when we earn more, we tend to still have a lot of the same issues. And I find people often spend an exact percentage of what they earn, no matter how much they earn. Mm. Um, so I was saying these things over and over to people who were all different types of people and different jobs. And I thought, you know what, food and money are so similar. So I took a lot of the, I took on that analogy of the food cleanse and I applied all of these things that I, w- that I was working on with my clients and created a program called the 30 day money cleanse that started out as a course and it's been around for a few years and it's still around, but I, the results were amazing from the course and that's why we turned it into a book so that more people could access it. And it is a fun, beautiful, really beautifully designed workbook that my goal is makes money fun and accessible and has you look forward to doing a money cleanse. Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the Job Offer Academy, our e-course to help you land a new job you love. So if you're sick of applying for jobs and never hearing back, and you'd like to try a free version of our job hunting course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash job offer. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash job offer. Now let's get back to this week's episode. I'm so curious for everybody listening right now. I'm sure anyone listening is like, all right, I need a money cleanse after Ashley's questions about credit scores. So tell me about week one. What are some steps that people should take if they want to actually implement the money cleanse into their life, pick up your book? What is the first step? So the first thing we do in the money cleanse is we let go of frivolous spending. So we have to define our money cleanse for us. So I have everyone list out all of their expenses and then put them into one of three buckets. So we put it into frivolous, which I think is another word that gets a bad rap. It's not negative. It's not bad. If something's frivolous, it just means it's not essential to us or a need. Um, then we either put it in frivolous, a need, something that is essential, and then a not sure. And not sure are usually things that just need to be more specific. Mm-hmm. And the example I give is like taxis, I might think they're typically a, f- a frivolous thing, but maybe after a certain time of night, I believe that it's better for my safety if I take one. So before 11 p.m., it's it's a frivolous expense. After 11 p.m., it's a need. Okay, that's great. So kind of setting your standards as far as like frivolous versus need so they can change. And I love the idea that the same thing could be different depending on the circumstance. So I like that little nuance there. And different for each of us. You know, I had someone in who's in the course right now asking if her hairspray is a need. And um, so it depends like how deep down you want to go with the needs. It's like, no, she won't die of starvation if she doesn't have hairspray. But it is something that she views as essential before she goes to work because she needs to look a certain way she believes for work. And that's completely fine. So it's that's what's fun about it is people worry that, and I think about this too, when I take a food cleanse, like, are you going to make me give up coffee? What are you going to make me do? And the beauty of it is you can cleanse as intensely as you want and you don't, you get to decide what you let go of. I'm not going to make you let go of anything. Yeah. And you know, it's so funny cause it's so personal. Like for example, um, everybody has different weird, you know, ticks with money, right? Like <laughs> my best friend, Nicole and I, we travel a lot. Like once a year we'll go on a two, three week trip and we laugh so hard, we, you know, like PR pants the whole trip. And one of the things that happened was we wanted to travel throughout the trip. So we went to Paris and we were like, we want to go to Amsterdam. We want to go here. Next thing we knew, there were a couple flights and one of them had a connecting flight, but it was half the price. And to me, that was no thing. I was like, of course, we're going to get the cheaper one. Like who even cares? But she would pay double or triple the amount any day to not have to get on a connecting flight 
or yeah. I have friends. I feel like you kind of, I'm always curious how people treat air- flying because that's where I see people that are like, I need leg room. I need business class, no layovers. Like there's different standards. And so it's always really interesting to see that somebody has something that you so don't, you know, like for me, it's yes. like I would never dream of spending triple the ticket because of an hour layover. But to my friend, that's like non-negotiable, like no way is she going to do that. Um, and, and it's cause she doesn't like flying. It's personal for her. Like she doesn't feel safe flying and she's afraid of flying and it's already a big ask for her to get up like you know the takeoff and the landing to happen once let alone multiple times for her so yeah good for everybody to kind of own their little freak flag of you know what's unique for them right and so that's and it's I'm so glad you brought that up because so in the beginning of the money cleanse we focus on ourselves and I think it's really important to have our own selves straight before we think about anybody else but a, a place that we often get tripped up is in our relationships and the, the people in our life because exactly as you mentioned, they value different things. So how does that coexist with my plan and how do we honor what's important for each of us when we're going out to dinner with a friend who is really into going to the newest, coolest place and maybe I'm really into wine. And like, so how do we create these win-wins where we're honoring the parts that are important to each other and navigating those situations where you're like, am I going to be on a different flight than her? Because I don't want to spend triple. So, um, those are all things that are important to navigate as we deal with our money cleanse. Totally. I love that you said that because I'm sure everybody has that friend where it's like, I have one girlfriend and she's like one of my favorite people. Cause she's such a yes girl. So it's like, you want to do this, 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 yes, yes, yes. I want to go to this concert. I want to go to this restaurant, but she always wants to share and order 40 things. And when I was clearing my debt, it was so traumatic for me. Cause I'd be like, I really want to have fun, but I don't want to feel like I have to pay for the, you know, all of these crazy things we're ordering. And so I found that bringing cash was such a good way for me to be more responsible. So I'm curious for, you know, just for your feedback, like what do people do when they do have different standards than friends? Like, what do you suggest? Um, you know, like for me, I found that carrying cash helps me or putting yeah. certain, I used to put certain amount of money into envelopes, um, and be like, okay, this is my social envelope for the month. And once it's out, it's over. Yes, that's a great strategy. What feedback you have as well, anything. Yes, so we're just going to dive kind of into week four because this is where, um, and we can always go back, but this is really important. And people always worry about how their money cleansing is going to affect their relationship. So the first thing is people that we, we talked about how we don't talk about money. And that might sound like kind of a big deal, but actually the biggest negative repercussion of that is that the people that we spend the most time with, our closest friends and family, they can't support us in our money goals. Mm. So we define our dream team in the money cleanse. And that means we write down all of these people's names and kind of how they affect our lives. So if you have, I think about sitting next to my coworker at my last job and like we made lunch decisions every day together. So she's an important person in my dream team. Um, And starting with the easiest person on the dream team and kind of sharing how they can support you, what your goals are, why they're important to you and strategizing from there. So if this person that you are talking about was someone that you were close enough that you wanted them on your dream team, you would have a conversation like, I am like so admire that you say yes to everything. I want to have fun, but I, it would make me so happy to be able to pay down this debt and I'd feel so relieved. So I would love to brainstorm strategies that we can still have this quality time and get to do these fun things. Um, And maybe it's uh, that I have this certain amount of money and we get to decide about it. Um, But having those type of conversations. Mm. Now, a lot of people in our lives are not at that level with us. And um, this is kind of where I call them environmental toxins come in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So environmental toxins are the people, places, and things that get the best of our spending. And so in this case, it's a person. Um, and just because they're, it sounds bad doesn't mean she's a bad person. I, know, I just it's pictured a, like a cartoon of my friend who's like a toxin <laughs> in my bank account. So that's really good for you to say. It's not a bad thing. It just necessarily means that there's probably something to look at there. Okay, tell me more. Yeah, so it means, all it means is that when you're with, how we do it in the money cleanse is you think about situations where you just think back and you regret it. You're like, why did that cost so much money? And sometimes the same people are in that situation with you over and over. And you're like, huh, maybe it's something about being with that person. Um, And so what we can do with environmental toxic people is that we don't necessarily have a conversation where we share about our our debt and that we're trying to save, but we use things like the envelope method or, um, let's say in my happiness allocation, I can spend 200 
dollars a month on drinks out or something, just saying random numbers. And if this person asked me to go out and I'm already out of my amount for the month, I just say no, you know, so coming up with plans that you and boundaries, like, you know, how you're going to deal with it. Um, and that might mean for you, okay, my envelope is empty. So, or my envelope has this much, that's all I have left. Then I think it's also funny. It sounds silly, but we work really well with rewards. So once we stick to that strategy, so if you stick to your envelope plan all week, or even if it's hard for you, then even every day you get little rewards, whether it's just little happy dance or putting a big smiley on your notebook or um, actual rewards like having a treat or taking a bubble bath or something to reward us for sticking with our plans. Mm, I love that. And I find that to be such an art. You know, I think for me in my world, it's like, uh, a lot of, I think, career coaching, like whether I'm helping somebody get a job offer or figure out what they want to do or start their business, it's really about figuring out how to help them say what they want to say and deliver. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really powerful to say, hey, I'm, I'm really want to do this and have fun. And I also really want to do this. Can you help me out? And for those of you who are listening, one of the most powerful marketing tools or just tools to get people to support you is to ask if they can help you. Um, so I love that. Okay, so right, and I think the why is so important because if you're just like, oh, I have to save, I don't want to do this, then they're going to be like, no, just have the extra drink or buy that sweater because you're not really enrolling them in how important it is to you. So the why I think is really important too when you're sharing. Yeah, it depends on the friend, right? Like some of the friends are like, we just want to have fun, and they're like a cartoon toxin in your head, even though you love your friend. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cartoon toxin. <laughs> it's so funny, Ashley. Like so many people have been telling me lately. Like, girlfriends they're like the things like the images that happen in your head Ashley I'm like yeah I don't know what's going on in here like it's some crazy stuff um okay so week one list the expenses put them into one of three buckets frivolous need or unsure and then let go of the frivolous spending week two um we hadn't gotten into yet but you said decide what to add back in and maybe come up with a spending plan so talk to me about that yes and in week one so I also recommend spending in cash um, because we're so not aware of where our money's going and cash really reconnects us for most, most of us spend less when we spend in cash. There are a few people who once the money's out of their account, it feels kind of like monopoly money and they spend more. But for most of us, if we're spending in cash, we become more aware. Um, and I also recommend no online shopping. So, because that's not a cash and usually not, um, a need. So, okay. That's week one. Then week two, we take that list and we actually look at each of our expenses on an annual basis. And this, I think, is so important because we often think about our spending in weekly, monthly, daily, and we don't see the true impact of all of our expenses. And when we do, we can reallocate them in ways that will make us really happy. So something that happened with me when I did this exercise is I I realized that my coffee was $1,600 a year. And at the time, I thought I couldn't afford a vacation, yet I could totally drink the free coffee at work and now take the 1600 and go to Spain with my cousin. And so, um, and the, the whole point of this is because it's personal, I have a lot of people in my money cleanse who decide, you know what, I love my coffee. It makes me so happy and I'm going to keep it. But it, the, the idea is just to take the honest look so that we get to decide what's going to maximize our joy per dollar. Mm, wonderful. And, um, you know, I, I wonder what the constriction is there as well, because one of the things I found is that when you are that tight about making a shift, and by the way, I mean, this is the girl who created a half a million dollars of debt, so you can correct me here. Um, but ever since I've healed it, I've tried to find that middle ground ever since paying off my debt where it's like, I don't want to be so absolute that I don't have a cup of coffee out with friends. So we create these rules for ourselves and then we live these lives of constriction. So how do people find that? It doesn't even have to be a middle ground, but that looseness so that they're not so tense where it's like, okay, it's $1,600 in coffee a year. I'm not buying one cup of coffee. Like, is there wiggle room or do you have any recommendations for people to kind of add their humanity back into the puzzle, you know, or they end yes. up having a reason? How do they kind of approach that? Yes. So restriction doesn't work. And we've, we can see it like there are a few people, always there's a few people, but if you think about a super restrictive diet, like a few people succeed in staying slim on a restrictive diet or a few people stay with 
a lot of savings by having a restrictive budget, but most of us rebel against it. And even if it works for you, technically there's, it really robs a lot of the joy of the experience. And like you're talking about that tightness, that not being able to be fluid. Um, so I think one really helpful tip for this is first view a lot of this, like you're almost looking at it like an experiment, um, and, and a detective. So when I'm, I still make tons of mistakes in my money life or look back and say, Oh, I wish I didn't spend that. But it's, it's really just a learning experience because we can grow and improve in our financial lives. Um, the other thing is the, so in the money cleanse, when we do our happiness allocation, the equation is your income annually, like what actually hits your bank account. If you have a paycheck and then minus your expenses annually equals what's left over for your goals. And when we, how to calculate things annually is essentially for me with that latte was $4 and 30 cents multiplied by 365 times a year. And that equaled $1,600 on most. Now, if I have a latte once a month with friends, um, that's $60. That is so much different than, and I could also make a choice to have something to get the $2 coffee instead of the latte and then do that. That would even more than have the amount, even if I still did it every day. So you can play around with the amounts, um, and the times per the, how often you do it to, to change those things. And I think it's, it's a lot of it is a choice to, I think there's, it's an interesting phenomenon that we're often quote unquote, treating ourselves at the expense of what we want most, but then we treat ourselves and we don't even enjoy it because we're so guilty. So I think it's a a lot of it is a choice to just say, you know what, I'm going to relish in this, this gift that I just got myself, whether it's a latte or skipping the latte because I want to put it towards debt. Um, but enjoying the choice. Okay. So it's week one, list your expenses, put them into one of those three buckets, frivolous need or unsure, let go of the frivolous spending. And then in week two, decide what to add back in and come up with a spending plan. Um, so based on what's left over, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's an area that kind of got me stuck in the past because I was not wanting to count these little tiny things that did add up. So I didn't have an accurate picture. So I think kind of getting down to like really knowing yourself, right? Like this is really about knowing yourself when you come up with a spending plan and you're calculating what's left over. I think a lot of people tend to leave out things that it's like, girl, you know, you go to the movies twice a month or, you know you tend to go to that spa and get a massage like calculate that be realistic be Um, realistic is huge yeah and then week three you said maximize joy per dollar I know we're wrapping up and I want to just kind of capture this um tell me about that yes okay so one of the things we do and it kind of goes back to your point of not being realistic is also I have everyone keep a money journal um write down or type out what they spend because very much, very often when we do the happiness allocation, it's very much a, what I wish my spending looks like, not like what it would actually look like. So it's the money journal is a good reality check. And then another thing we do. So in going back to my coffee example, for many of us, when we see what we spend annually on different items, it's like, Whoa, I don't, that's not worth it. We can decide immediately, or that's worth it. But a lot of times we are like, uh, is it worth it? I don't really know. Is that normal? And so one exercise that I love is looking at our expenses in terms of the things that make us happy. And I call this our opportunity cost because unfortunately we can only spend each dollar we have once. And um, so if, for example, dinner with friends or or something that make me really happy, I can look at all of my expenses in terms of dinners with friends. So if I could have... 18 dinners with friends instead of my coffee, would that be worth it to me? If I could, if I'm taking um, $1,000 in cabs, would 11 or 12 dinners with friends be worth it to me to switch out those cabs? And so to look at not just in dollar amounts, because sometimes that's less meaningful, but to look in terms of other happy things. Mm, so just being intentional about it, which is always a good idea. Um, yes. And then week four, you talked about, we already kind of talked about like dealing with our cartoon toxin friend that we love. <laughs> um, but you also talked about systems going forward. So I'm curious what that really looks like, because for me, I've come up with some systems now ever since healing from all of that debt that came from my first company. And bouncing back and buying a new place now and all of these things that I'm doing, it's like, I'll never forget 
the debt and it will never forget me probably. <laughs> so I'm curious, like what systems can we create moving forward? So I think the most important system is creating the time to deal with our finances because we tend to just have everything put on the back burner and not, when we don't put the time in our calendar, it just doesn't happen. And then they kind of, our to-do list around money hangs over our head and stresses us out. So I'm a big fan of having money parties, which means time in the calendar every two weeks or every month, depending on if you do it more often, they can be shorter. If you do them every month or a bit longer, but just to check in on how did your spending look those two weeks? Um, how are, how's my progress towards my goals? Did I have any random things that I have to do like cancel a subscription or roll over my 401k or have a conversation with my partner? So it's a time to dedicate to dealing with our finances and then making it fun because it's a money party. So either having a favorite beverage or putting on cozy pajamas or music or um, rewarding ourselves after. So I think that a practice of having a money party will set you up for so much financial success. That's amazing. Ash, thank you so much for being here. Let everybody know where can they find you? Where can they get your book? Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. You can find me on most social media at the fiscal femme and the fiscal And I'm happy to share. Um, I have a 48 hour guide that could be really fun to just take a weekend, take two days and just get your finances in order through the exercises. And some of the, which we talked about today. Um, and then the, the books on my site, it's called the 30 day money cleanse. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ash. This is going to be such an amazing episode for everybody to tune into. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, it's Ash here reflecting on this week's episode with a fellow Ash, (laughs) Ash Feinstein Gersley on debt and money management and oh my god I want to throw up doing this post-epi conversation because I went through so much with debt I almost don't really know where to start Um, but what I realized and what I learned from the debt so my first company and I never really talked too much about what really happened but just to give you some insight my first company was all about private coaching, career coaching, how to get a job, how to figure out what you want to do. And eventually I really burned out. I had way too many clients and I wanted to create an e-course because I found myself repeating myself in a lot of conversations about job hunting. And I thought, oh wow, I have a method. And I was so devoted to turning that into an e-course. And over the course of two years, pun intended, I ended up going into debt kind of like because I was an octopus. I didn't really know my little tentacles, my hands were going everywhere trying to find things that would make it work. And so I was spending on websites and shopping carts and all sorts of things that now as a business coach and a career coach, I have helped a lot of entrepreneurs. I'm like, oh my God, please don't spend your money on that. You don't need that. But I didn't know that at the time. So I went into a lot of debt, spending on all sorts of things I didn't need. And, you know, it's just so interesting now looking back because eventually everything started to work. The e-course started to sell and I was able to get out of debt And then as the e-course started thriving, I remember the first time I was doing a webinar multiple times, um, paying for Facebook ads and supporting, using the ads to support people and showing up for my webinar. And then based on how many people showed up for the webinar, a certain amount of people would want to buy my job hunting course, which now is still available as the Job Offer Academy. But at the time... I remember, you know, nobody would buy it. It was like I didn't know how to talk about this course when I really believed in it. And I was like, this is going to help you get a job. But I didn't know how to offset the expenses of ads with my sales. And then eventually one day, I remember giving a presentation and 40 people bought my product. And it was the it was $1,000 at the time because it had all sorts of things. It had group calls and a Facebook group with career experts and resume writers and all sorts of things, the modules. Um, so it was a little bit different than now with the job offer Academy, which is solely the content home study for you to do, um, with the method on how to land a job. But at the time it was, this whole program is a thousand dollars and 40 people bought. So I remember making $40,000 an hour and I'd never made anything like that in my life. And I was in total shock and I thought it was a fluke. And then I repeated it the next week and the next week and the next week. And that was when I realized, oh my God, like, this is not a mistake. People are buying my course. And then I felt like Little Wayne. Like, I felt like a rapper that suddenly makes it and is just, like, going nuts. Like, I just couldn't believe it. And 
that was when I got a bunch of lawyers because I wanted to learn, you know, wow, like I'm getting all these customers. And I, I felt like what Gay, Hend- um, Gay Hendricks in the book, The Big Leap, calls a, an upper limit problem. That was what I felt. And I was like, wow, is it, am I able to have it this good in my career? Like, am I allowed to have this many customers? And I hired about 10 employees because I needed career experts and all sorts of people, uh, customer service email, all the things to support me. And if there's anything I learned as an entrepreneur, when you grow fast, it's not on the customer. So that means that customers don't have to be patient, you know, like they don't want to be patient. So if, uh, you know, my assistant can't really help with the customer support email because they don't know what they're doing, like it's not on the customer to wait and figure it out. I need to give them an answer. So it was a really chaotic time It is how I associated that period. And eventually I ended up getting a bunch of lawyers to look at everything. And I was like, I don't know, I'm just making so much and I have all these customers and they looked at everything and they said, well, a lot of what you're doing is a gray zone. There's no case law on webinars, but everybody in your space does webinars. But here's some of the rules. And because I came from the Pentagon, because I come from counterterrorism and literally justice town, I believe in justice. I want to follow the rules. My integrity is important to me. So I turned off the webinar, even though I was making a ton of money. And I said, let me figure this out. Let me implement all of the things that you think are gray zones. And I spent six months testing and trying new webinars and nothing would work. And then about seven months, eight months later, I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I'm so tired. I need revenue to come back. I have a whole team to support. I was spending so much on Facebook ads, like hundreds of thousands of dollars every month. I was spending so much on my employees, like tens of thousands of dollars every month. And it felt like this weight on my shoulders. And I thought, I'm just going to put the webinar up that's working and play around and see what else I can do. I put the webinar up that originally made the sales and Lo and behold, Facebook ad cost had gone up and it was no longer profitable. And so that tiny little window of time where everything was working was the only window of time. And in that window, I gave everything to trying to fix this course. I hired the high-end consultant. I hired that new Facebook ad person that said they could do it. You name it, I hired it to the point where by the end of my company, I had my COO, I I got everybody a new job because obviously I'm like the ultimate job seeker. So I I looked at my team and I said, do you want the good news or the bad news? And they said, we'll have the good news. And I was like, I've got you all new jobs. (laughs) And that was when they realized and they all got these new jobs. But my CEO bought a house with her husband from the money that she earned in the company. My COO bought a condo and my Facebook ad specialist bought a yacht. And in the end, I was left with negative $500,000 and I, my ego just didn't want to claim bankruptcy because I was like, no way, like I'm going to work this out. I've got this. I'm going to do this on my own. It's me against the world and I can do it. And ultimately I hustled my ass off and I refused to claim the bankruptcy. I got a payment plan from American Express, started p- paying off my debts And along the way, I realized, wow, like when we're little kids, it's little kid problems. But when we're a big kid, it's adult problems sometimes, right? And I realized that one of the biggest pains that I had when it came to the debt wasn't necessarily the money, although it was intimidating. And eventually, as I started to chip away at it and get momentum and started cake publishing, ghostwriting, ended up building up that company, started private coaching again, ended up building up that, started getting paid for keynotes again. All these things started happening and I started to feel momentum. But what I realized was that the money brought up, the the heaviness of the debt brought up a lot of pain from when I was a kid. Um, you know, just remembering when my dad lost all of his money and feeling this hopeful hopelessness and telling myself that that would never happen to me and realizing that it did. And I think also just realizing my family can't save me and all of these years of my life thinking I had this safety net in my family because I do, you know, and not everybody has that. I'm really grateful that my home and my parents are a place I can go whenever I need to connect and with them. But what I found is that my parents couldn't help me out of the debt. Like I turned to them and and I almost wanted them to bail me out and they didn't have that kind of money to fix it. And when I asked them, what do I do with debt? They'd never been, you know, it'd been so many years since my dad went through that um, and that financial loss and they didn't really know what to tell me. And it was the first time in my life that the rug was ripped beneath me and I realized I'm really on my own. It's me against the world and it's taking responsibility. And when I really look at the debt, I realize that the entire journey there was one of denial and denial is really fucking expensive in business. And let me tell you, I learned because if you think about a half million dollars of debt, I mean, it's not like I wake up and a half million dollars of debt is there. It's like 
the first week it was 50,000 and then the next week it was 100,000 and then the next week it was 200,000. It's like it slowly happened over a few weeks and there was a level of denial and I think that we all have this in our lives in some way whether it's with money or something else where number one we don't want something to be happening and number two we're hopeful that it will change. So that can exist in a romantic relationship, in a job, in your bank account. It's like hopefully this isn't going where I think it is. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe things will change. Hopefully things will start to look up and you hold on to things on the hope that they will shift when really it can be such a form of denial and it starts to hit you upside the face. It's going to end up hitting you upside the face, whether you want it to or not. And so my encouragement for you today um, in your finances is to take a look and say, where am I in denial? Because, oh my God, now that I'm on the other side of this debt and now that I'm living a life where I'm investing in buying a condo and traveling and I'm, my business is stabilizing. It's like, oh my God, I am so grateful for that journey. I never want to go through it again. I would never wish that upon anyone. And most, the most successful entrepreneurs I know, when I start talking about this, people that you would never believe had this, they lean into me and they nod. And it's a certain special type of nod that connects us where I'm like, wow, you've been through this too. And I'm able to look at so many, you know, celebrities and coaches that you see on the internet that are just have these amazing businesses. And when I see that special nod, I look at them and say, you went through this. And they're like, yeah, but I didn't tell anybody. And it's like, oh my God, we are all so human. We are all one. And the sooner you get out of denial and the sooner you face the truth about the relationship that you're holding on to because you hope it gets better or the bank account that is getting more and more in debt because you think maybe you're going to be able to swing it, but you're not actually looking at the numbers. Self-love is not always a spa treatment and a bubble bath and a chocolate bar and a shopping spree. Self-love is making a sheet of your debts. Self-love is eating healthier. Self-love is really looking at the truth because it's going to hit you anyway. So I am sending you all the love. I know this is a crazy tough topic for a lot of you, including me. And, um, you know, I talked about my debt a lot when I was still in it. I don't believe in talking about things when I'm perfect and on the other side of them. And I would love to hear from you um, or I'd love for you to share this episode if it resonated. Shout out Ashley from um, Fiscal Femme. She's so great what she's doing, helping other women out there. I wish I had somebody like her before I got into the debt, but I trust that the debt was meant for me and I trust myself not to create that again. All right, sending you all the love. Can't wait to hear what you think of this episode. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. We keep really detailed show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. So if our guest mentioned a book or a resource that you're interested in, you'll be able to find that there. In the meantime, if you were inspired by this episode, if it made an impact in your life, we would be so grateful if you subscribed and posted a review for us on iTunes. Rumor has it on the street, the more reviews we get, the more subscribes we get, the more we can grow and get our impact out there in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you at Ashley Stahl on Instagram. I'm so grateful for connecting and I look forward to next week's episode.